I'm Tim Gombas, and this is Faith Improvised. It's a podcast where I can think out loud and talk with friends about whatever interests me. Books, films, sports, music, culture, politics, the wonders and complexities of being Christian in this world, and my academic discipline, biblical studies. You're welcome to email me if you like at faithimprovised at gmail.com. In this episode, I recommend a fascinating book on the history of a major personality type test, and I talk about the opening chapter of the Bible's big story. So I'm standing here in the new space from which I'm podcasting. That is my study that I've put together for myself. Loads of bookshelves all around me. My brand new office chair. And this place is um, turning out to be the, just the perfect spot for me to do my work. I love it. And the perfect spot um, to do this podcast, this high-quality podcast. And uh, except when there's uh, laundry in the dryer. So I've got to time things just right. Anyway, I uh, do have a little bit of sad news about Freddie Mercury and George Clooney, although it's not sad news. It's just news. Uh, we had, a, um, we had a, a parting of ways. Freddie and George did not fit into uh, family plans, and um, by which I mainly mean I was sick of cleaning up litter everywhere, sick of cleaning up their white hair all over the place, and... Um, sick of taking the medicine that I have to take just to have them in the house. I had a wonderful year with Freddie and George, and they were wonderful companions. I will always look on them fondly. Thanks to the wonders of social media, there is a West Michigan Pet Rehoming Facebook page, and I put an ad up for them. And of course, because they are such handsome devils, someone came and uh, claimed them within a day. So it sounds like the new home they are in um, is being filled with their larger-than-life personalities, and everyone's happy. Freddie and George are probably happier. I'm happier. And uh, the family that received the wonderful gifts that they are, they're also happy. But anyway, just a little bit of an update. Um, it's not sad at all. It's a good thing for, for all parties involved. I picked up a couple of uh, really interesting books the other day at Books and Mortar just down the street here in Grand Rapids. I saw these and um, took a picture of one of them and sent it to Steve because it's just I think it's the kind of thing that he would dig. Uh, the title just caught my attention. It's by Justin Smith, who is a historian of science and uh, historian, uh, historian of science and technology, that sort of thing. And it's called The Internet is Not What You Think It Is, A History, A Philosophy, A Warning. And I'm about a third of the way into it. And for you know an academic work, well, it's not pitched to in like an academic audience necessarily, but it's by a philosopher. It's published by Princeton University Press. And um, it's, it's kind of weighty. I mean, the discussions that he's drawing on, it is fascinating. And um, talking about the character, like a philosophical reflection in the first chapter on the character of attention who thinks about such things philosophers do that's who and he talks about uh what it is that various media do to our attention um and people have been talking about such things going back quite a ways like to the invention of the printing press wait wait, wait. way before that to the invention of writing like four centuries bce um, 
Chinese thinkers and Indian thinkers were um, talking about what was being lost when people started writing things down instead of memorizing them and passing them on uh, from person to person. So the, you know, the, the medium of writing, which became a social medium, um, brought with it some costs and especially uh, brought some costs to the character of attention. And uh, Justin Smith draws on all these discussions to talk about the character of attention uh, that the internet sort of disrupts and attracts, which is really fascinating. And that's, I'm only in chapter one. Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit way into chapter two where he sort of advances his discussion into other things, but just really interesting. Hope to say more about that down the road. And I picked up another book by Jenny O'Dell called How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. And um, Jenny O'Dell is an artist she also teaches at Stanford University, and um, she's got a TED Talk and other things that she's done online um, where she kind of meditates on um, space where nothing is happening. It's just, it's just really interesting. And here she talks about the attention economy and the costs there to what it means to be human. And these books got my attention because of something that I believe I saw first in uh, Manush Zomorodi's book. Uh, bored and brilliant, where she talks about how it is that right now, um, neuroscientists and psychologists are getting big money to be hired on by all these tech firms to do cutting edge research on the character of attention, because attention is the most valuable um, sort of real estate in the current economy. And so, um, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars are being spent in research on how to keep your attention fixed on your smartphone for three seconds rather than four. If they, if uh, tech companies can sort of move that needle, there are hundreds of millions and billions of dollars at stake. And our attention is being sold, um, being bought and sold by interests. And um, Justin Smith and Jenny O'Dell meditate on what's at stake um, with the internet being what it is as this sort of profit-driven, attention-grabbing dynamic. Really, really interesting. Anyway, hope to have some more to say about that down the road. Um, just a small note. I think I said this um, sometime in the past, but a couple times a week, I get a note, a message on Twitter or Facebook or some other way, something comes to me, and uh, someone will say, hey, I, I'm looking for this or that, or I had a question for you, and I can't find your email address anywhere. And I just want to say once again, um, I give my email address at the beginning of every episode. So um, there are some times where in, in Messenger or in... Um, private message on Twitter or direct, whatever it's called. I won't see a message for months. And um, a great way to get in touch with me is just to email me at faithimprovised at gmail.com. Anyway, um, I got a couple of, well, I got a load of emails after the last couple of episodes and uh, some great, great questions that I think are really, really interesting. I'll probably touch on some of these 
as we go, but I thought I would address a few of them at this point. From Chet, who just had um, uh, Chet and his wife welcomed a new child into their family. Congratulations, Chet. That's just fantastic. He had a couple of questions about um, parental training, which I have a lot of thoughts on, and I'll either write him back on that or maybe talk about that down the road. We'll see. Um, he said, could you further expound on how evangelicalism promotes niceness and makes cynicism seem bad? Made a quick remark about it during last week's episode, but it piqued my curiosity the more I thought about it. I often feel guilty when I'm not nice or when I'm critical, but I think that that is inherited guilt. I'm starting to question if Christians, including myself, substitute niceness for authenticity and honesty. That's a great question. Um, yeah, there's something about the character of evangelical life that is, um, well, there's something about evangelicalism, and I've talked about this before, that is is very middle class and white, and it was intent, the, the culture was intentionally structured that way. And so it's characterized by values that are up and running in that culture, kind of like Midwestern niceness. Here in West Michigan, there's this thing called West Michigan nice, and it's this kind of very polite um, way of relating to, to everybody. This is how everyone relates to one another. Whether or not you feel good about another person or not, or whether or not you're stabbing them in the back with destructive gossip, on the surface, everybody is nice. Kind of like um, the character of all the, you know, the interactions in Fargo, uh, the brilliant Coen Brothers film. Everyone is just so nice. Everyone is just so doggone nice, even if there are uh, sinister things up and running. Um, but yeah, I've, I've often wondered about this, about how it is that sentimentality and niceness and um, sincerity or the, uh, are sort of like primal values. Like um, something may be going very wrong in a church community or someone might be doing something wrong or someone might... Um, have behavior or teaching or whatever. There may be something sinister about the character of community life, but that sort of thing will be excused because someone means well, or, the, or I, I'm sure that they're sincere, or you know, I'm sure they're trying, or whatever the case is. There's a way of kind of excusing or sort of putting an end to critical analysis or critical discussion um, by just this kind of like trump card of niceness or sincerity. Um, yeah, so I've often wondered about that. Like that, There's a lot about our common life that should be subject to intense scrutiny that we not necessarily should be cynical about. Like cynicism seems to me to be like to assume the worst. I don't mean that. I don't think that that's necessarily good. I think we should be assuming the best about each other. And holding that together with... Um, seriously scrutinizing bad behavior. I mean, there is, there are um, loads of instances where there's been abuse that is running rampant in church communities. Um, but we want to say about a person, well, they mean well, or we kind of want to look on the bright side. I saw someone post on Facebook a couple years ago, um, a challenge to, if you have some negative things to say about the then president, um, if you have some critical comments to make about that president, the previous president, um, can you think of one good thing to say about the person? And um, 
I think that that kind of challenge flows from this sort of like sense that we have to be even-handed and fair. And to be even-handed and fair is to give someone the benefit of the doubt, but to analyze their behavior and their speech like thoroughly and perseveringly, especially if they are in a position in a community of consequence. And the president of the United States is in a position of massive consequence. And so he should not be evaluated on the basis of like, is he a nice person or not? Um, the analysis of that office, whoever's holding that office, the analysis of their job performance ought to be thoroughgoing and um, highly critical and with a great degree of discernment and in a sense, remorselessness, like get sincerity and sentimentality out of here. We're not, we're not going to talk about whether they have good motives. Let's just assume they're trying. But if they're massively fouling things up and hurting people, we have to talk about that. Um, so that's what that seems to me to be fair. It does not seem to me to be fair um, to sort of note that someone is behaving in destructive ways. But let's also look at some of their good qualities. You know, on the other hand, you know, they mean well or they, they're really nice to their dog or something like that. Uh, I mean, a character like uh, the previous president has no redeeming qualities. He's a thoroughgoing scoundrel and an utterly corrupted human being, like the epitome of a human that is thoroughly perverse in every conceivable way. Um, to say that is not to be uh, mean-spirited or anything like that. It's just to look at the man's life and career um, and to make sensible observation. And uh, unfortunately, when we think about the ways that we operate in Christian communities, um, if we want to be sort of really careful about how we conduct ourselves as Christian communities so that everyone is brought into flourishing and goodness and kindness and the love of the Lord and the love of community, um, that's going to take some intense scrutiny and sort of running the risk of feelings getting hurt or people not liking that. Um, that's too bad. We, we've got to be careful with people, not hurt them unnecessarily. But if, but if people are behaving in ways that are destructive to other people in community, we have to talk about that. Um, we have to talk about that and not relent if we are serious about the kind of things that um, are said in the Gospels about judgment. So... Um, I just think a good example of this uh, would be to talk about, um, or I guess this is one of the ways that all of this is manifested. When we talk in Christian communities, especially white Christian communities about matters of race and how um, people of color and non-white people uh, can be hurt by community dynamics and how we have to, as the church, reckon with what's happened in our nation's history, what people have, what white people have done, what white Christians have done to foster injustice and horrors on a massive scale, that has to be revealed and exposed. And those dynamics will be painful to come to grips with. And so often, because that's highly uncomfortable, um, white people will resist it and will resist it actively and will name. Um, you know, white allies as disruptive or um, divisive, or people who are abused in communities in general will be labeled as divisive or trying to sow dissension. 
And um, that's, those are tragic um, circumstances. Whereas someone should be nice and just kind of let it go and just sort of go along and get along. Anyway, there's probably a lot more to say about that. Um, but I made that comment, I think, in talking about um, the kinds of things that are sung in many evangelical churches, like to point out how many of these songs are theologically incoherent, or they are even metaphorically incoherent, or they are grammatically disastrous, or um, if you string together sort of um, a pattern of thought, they make no sense, or they actually say the opposite of what scripture has to say, or they, for you know, violate a range of things theologically and artistically. It feels that to talk about that is unkind or ungenerous. Like, well, the person who wrote that is really a really great person and the Lord really did a work in his life or something like that. Like we feel we have to sort of jump in with a comment like that instead of saying, yes, that song makes no sense. Those, those metaphors are mixed and confusing. That participle is not connected to any verb. What is going on there? Um, anyway, I don't think those things are unkind to, um, to talk about. Um, I think that especially people who are given roles of responsibility in church communities have to have discussions like that because it's their role to see to it that communities of the followers of Jesus are actually flourishing, which takes some discernment and some critical discussions. Anyway, probably a thousand more things to say about that chat, but those are, sorry, I feel like having had a discussion like that, I don't want to say, well, I endorse being a jerk to people, uh, which I don't, um, but I also don't endorse um, niceness or sentimentality as a cover for um, fruitless community dynamics. I guess I would say it that way. Got this from Ryan. I think it was really helpful um, clarifying. I, I told him that other people might be interested in this as well, so I would save it for this space. Um, he said the Bible was written by a wide variety of authors over a long period of time in a number of locations. In the original languages, authorial voice and tone and vernacular would be noticeable. That is the case. But when it's translated into English, it seems like that is lost. Like when I read the Gospels, I don't necessarily see those types of differences. I see thematic differences, but not the more subtle ones. If I read two different English language writers, I can see the differences in style and voice. I don't feel like I see that when reading the Bible. Of course, some of that might be from growing up in an evangelical church that taught that God was the author of the Bible. Um, parenthesis. Yes, that is absolutely the case. Close parenthesis. So I guess my question is, how do I see and appreciate those differences without having to learn Greek and Hebrew? Um, I think it's really, really helpful to, um, if you want to see those differences represented, one of the Bible versions that I read regularly is the New American Standard Bible. And there's there are updates to that. I believe there have been two since it was originally published. It's it's one of the most geriatrically slow-moving Bible translation committees in the history of the universe. And um, they just take forever to do their work. I still use the 1995 updates. I think it's good. I think that's that's um, one of my favorite Bible translations, along with the newest NIV. I think those are great. <clears throat> 
one of the priorities of the New American Standard Bible translation is to represent kind of like a word-for-word way of translating more of a, um, um, a yeah, word-for-word equivalency, sometimes at the risk of not making as, as good of sense as like the NIV, where the NIV sort of gives thought for thought. And it's a, those are just different translation philosophies. And I respect them both. But if you want to see the writing style, I think the New American Standard Bible is, is probably the best way to go with that. Um, because those things will show up. Differences in writing style. And what I mean by that especially is, um, say, for example, the Gospel of Mark. They will, the Gospel of Mark is written in, a, um, it's written in Greek in a way that um, leaves readers kind of breathlessly, you know, uh, panting because of the fast pace of the narrative. And it's, it's kind of choppy. Um, and that's, I believe, intentional. And you will get that in the New American Standard translation of the Gospel of Mark. So um, you would see the difference in writing style if you read that over against the New American Standard Bible's translation or a translation of, say, like Matthew, Luke, or John. You'd pick those writing styles up because they want to leave that in there. So um, they leave a lot of terms. Whereas, like, so the NI, the NIV does a lot of cleaning up of Mark's, they, they might view Mark as kind of clumsy and they want to sort of tidy him up so he reads more smoothly. Well, I, I know why they're doing that, but in my opinion, that sort of ruins the one of the strategies that Mark has. And, you know, one of, one of Mark's ways of kind of getting at that kind of breathless pace is he keeps overusing a certain word, especially the word immediately. Like he'll use it obnoxiously in a, in a concentrated um, a concentrated way. So like in a verse, he'll use it three times. And it's like, well, that's just, I mean, you would know this, Ryan, that is just bad writing style, right? Vary your, vary your word usage. Well, if you are a writer and all you have is words and you want to sort of obnoxiously accentuate um, the pace of something and sort of punch your reader in the face with it, that's what you do. The NIV, knowing that that's not going to translate into good English, cleans a lot of that up. And so you miss the details of that writing style. And in the, um, in the letters, the NASB will leave in all of the conjunctions, which sometimes when there's an argument being constructed, uh, the NASB will keep in all of the uses of fors and so that's and in order that's, and it might, again, make for, um, uh, you know, halting English, or it might not make for the best English, but you get the logical flow of where authors are going. So if you had, if you knew that that's the translation philosophy of the NASB, and you knew the translation philosophy of the NIV, and maybe this, and you knew what the CEB was doing, those are three translations I would have before me when looking at any text. And I would know that the NASB is going to give me the most sort of clear snapshot of a writer's writing style. Um, I think if I was in the Psalms, uh, the NIV kind of captures the, the pacing and the beauty of the poetry the best. But if again, if you want to see how that literally looks, uh, read the NA, NASB. Um, you'd get a good idea of how, uh, of how Hebrew poetry works without any 
concern to make this look uh, to make this read like really good English. So you can do a lot. You can you can get ninety five percent down the road of understanding how texts are working and how writer, writers style is at work without having to learn Greek or Hebrew, especially if you're a bit older like myself, where information does not stick and you simply cannot learn um, a new language with any kind of ease or convenience because of the shape of your life, um, the NASB will come to your rescue, even though it takes them 50 years to come out with an update. Um, whatever. Translation committee, without much concern to be of, of a whole lot of use to people. Anyway, that is some sincere cynicism right there. But I know some of those folks. But anyway, um, this is from Larry, which, and this is a, uh, this is a very interesting question. If God's project was to create a new people, where are the Jews? I'm not thinking dispensationally, rather wondering where the Jews really are. They don't seem to be within Christian churches. Aren't the Jews and Gentiles supposed to comprise the one true people within the church? The church has a pretty dismal history with the Jewish people, understatement of this century, I should say. The skeptic in me sometimes thinks this shows that God's project has been a complete failure. I'm going to read that again. The skeptic in me sometimes thinks that this shows that God's project has been a complete failure. I would insert um, the objective observer in me often thinks that this shows that God's project has been a complete failure. Back to Larry. Sometimes questions like this make me want to leave the reservation altogether. Man, Larry, you and I are together. I know that at the end of the podcast, you talk about God's cosmic visions, agreed, perhaps it's enough if the church somehow becomes truly multi-ethnic. But my reading of Paul seems to indicate that he expected the Jew-Gentile thing to become more integrated than what we have in the church today. And I'm not just thinking about the North American church. Man, oh man. Um, how much time do I have here? She's Louise. This is a pretty massive, massive um, issue. I'll just give some brief thoughts on this. Um, I grew up in a, a tradition where we talked about this a lot, and I, I imagine almost all of you have heard stuff like this or said stuff like this, that um, when we look at the project of God with Israel in the Old Testament, we can see clearly that that was a failure. God spoke to his people, Israel, about what he wanted them to produce, and they didn't do it. Then, with the arrival of Jesus Christ on the scene in, in the first century, Jesus Christ showed up to the historic people of God, and there was the expectation that they would listen, that they would get it, that this would work, and they missed it. They simply rejected the vision that God was offering them in Jesus, that of um, inhabiting and receiving the kingdom of God with a cruciform Lord at its head as its king. They rejected that. Um, and we might tell the story now from our comfortable megachurches sipping a cup of coffee that we got at our church um, coffee shop, and we might say, Old Testament Israel missed it. First century Jewish culture to which Jesus arrived missed it. We are the ones who got it. And we might have a theological rationale for that. We might say something like, ah, it was the giving of the Holy Spirit that 
um, illuminated people's minds and transformed people's hearts. Um, Old Testament Israel did not have the Holy Spirit. First century Jewish culture did not have the Holy Spirit. That's why we are the ones who are obedient and um, we are the ones who get it and who have got it. And um, I have to say, um, and I, this is something I've kind of talked about in the past, uh, my experience as a biblical scholar, as a New Testament scholar, has been an experience of absolute terror and existential crisis, running on about 20 years now. That is to say, I study these texts full-time. This is my job, and I teach them. And I talk about this vision in um, this vision in the New Testament of God's creation of a unified, multi-ethnic people um, that gather together across ethnic lines and across lines of socioeconomic difference, and they they gather for a meal that runs on you know several hours, and they talk about how they can serve one another and how they can have solidarity with one another and how they can be. Um, a gathered people that live God's justice in an unjust culture. And um, I, I look at that vision of life on the pages of the New Testament, and then I, I, I inhabit the Christian culture that I inherited, and all I can say is, what, whatever we're doing, it has nothing to do with what I'm seeing on the pages of the New Testament. Like, n- there's no correspondence here, except that it corresponds to the kind of churches that um, Paul wrote to, the kind of communities that Paul wrote to in Corinth, to whom he said, are you sure you're even in because you're not living the kind of life that is at all represented by the gospel? And except that we are resembling the kind of churches to which John wrote in Revelation when he tells them that they have left their first love. Or the churches that I'm familiar with uh, represent a church like uh, the ones churches like the ones in Galatia to whom Paul wrote and said, you know, basically you're not walking straight toward the truth of the gospel because you're not integrated across ethnic lines. And I mean, I'm, I'm just a participant in a culture that has over 400 years of history um, where the shape of Christianity on this land has been divided by race. I mean, it was, it was European Christians who arrived here um, claimed this land through genocide, and then enslaved African people, brought them here, and um, you know built a massive economy in the name of the Christian God. So it's like, my goodness, there is massive divisions. There are massive divisions. The, the church is massively divided, I should say, along the lines of ethnic difference, ethnic and racial difference, now that the category of race has been invented. Um, and that's to say nothing of completely n- neglecting the project of becoming inclusive communities across the lines of Jew and non-Jew, which was Jesus's and Paul's vision, to say nothing of the other apostles. So it's like, I mean, there have been people who have wrestled with this in the past. Um, there is a recent volume uh, Urban's published, doggone it, it's around here somewhere. Uh, I have not organized this office yet, um, that talks about these sort of two, uh, this family that has kind of been split, you know, two millennia ago. John Howard Yoder had 
um, a book where he wrestled with this reality. Like when you come to grips with the vision of what's happening in the New Testament and, the, and then look around and see that we're not doing that. And not only, as Larry mentioned, not only not doing it, but doing the opposite and um, persecuting and seeking to destroy uh, Jews. It's like, what in the world? And as a professional New Testament scholar, I get my paycheck looking at these texts and as a confessing Christian, all I can say is, I don't know what to do with that. It's nuts. Like, this is, I can't even believe that. I can't even believe um, the claim that Israel in the first century Jewish culture missed it, but we got it because we're not doing it at all. And what is really fascinating to me, this was a couple of years ago, I was having a conversation uh, with Mike Goheen as um, we were climbing up. Oh, shoot. What's the name of that? mountain in phoenix oh man anyway we were on a climb and he was sliding all over the place but he was uh telling me about um how william dumbrill who is a biblical theologian i believe is australian that it's his conviction i think he said it somewhere in print that the church has missed it as well the church is just like israel it has not embodied um the call that god has made to it and is sort of um, insisted upon it. And sort of the church as it's found around the world is, is in the same position as Israel. So uh, I'm, I'm right there in the same existential crisis that you're expressing here, Larry. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's really frightening. It's really frightening when you think about the sort of things that God says um, about uh, not doing what he has said to do. And the nice thing about really identifying that plainly is that there are Christian postures available to respond well to that reality. That is confession of sin, um, naming these realities, uh, lamenting, mourning, grieving, um, praying, prophetically speaking to our church communities for renewal and getting getting their attention to do something about these um, unjust realities and um, high-handed sinning realities that our communities and our traditions have engaged in. But um, yeah, that, I've got the very same questions and those um, make up one of my um, existential crises. I do feel good. I shouldn't say I feel good about this, but I, it does give me some comfort that I'm part of a, a Christian tradition that routinely and by which I mean weekly, confesses sin. And these are the kinds of things I think about. Um, genocide of Native peoples on American soil. Um, the horrors of African slavery in American history and in Christian American history. And um, the terrors and the horrors of anti-Jewish um, violence ever since the beginning of the second century. Uh, one of the things that's interesting, oh, along these lines, I should say that historically, it's it's a striking, striking reality that um, the proper cradle for uh, infant Christianity was um, Palestine and the Mediterranean world. Um, but when Christianity, or when when the Christian movement or the Christian way went, it left Palestine through the Apostle Paul and his mission teams, and went around the Mediterranean world, um, the whole reality of the Christian gospel left its natural cradle. And right away, 
like in the early second century, became something different. Um, it, it sort of became Europeanized. And instead of it kind of growing up um, in its natural cradle and then sort of moving to the rest of the world over time, um, with the destruction of the temple and the devastation in Judea, um, that possibility was lost. And I'll just, I'll use the term Christianity for lack of a better word. I don't like to use that term. Um, but the Christian way became sort of um, Europeanized and then uh, Latinized, and it, it became something different over a long period of time and is transformed into something radically different um, as it's arrived in North America, wrapped up in logics of capitalism, whiteness, um, you know, land grabbing, all the rest. Um, a variety of triumphalisms has characterized Christianity in America. Um, but what's also interesting along with that is that when Christianity left its natural cradle early in the second century, it also became anti-Jewish right away. Um, you see this in early Christian writings of the early second century, like with like by about 110, um, which is really fascinating how fast that happened. To think about how it is that all these texts produced by Jewish followers of Jesus, based on a Jewish way of life, based on uh, the scriptures of Israel, um, tied directly to the land, concerned for the poor, um, oriented around a Jewish peasant, uh, fostering a way of life that was utterly concrete and not abstract at all. Very, very shortly, um, within several centuries, it becomes about the wealthy, it becomes abstracted and not concrete becomes about ideas and not a way of life. And um, and along with that, it has to become anti-Jewish. It has to. Um, those corruptions are sort of woven into the heart of it. So anyway, it's a bad situation. But um, it kind of goes back to the beginning when Christianity sort of grew up into its kindergarten stage. It became something very different. And that's a very sad situation. Um, there's a couple questions I wanted to address about individualism. Well, this is getting overly long already. This episode is going to be super long, but people have a week to listen to it. So what the heck? I got a couple questions about individualism and, uh, there's a couple that I'll respond to by email because they're a little bit more specific. Um, but Paul wrote and said, it feels like you're swinging the pendulum too far the other direction when it comes to communal faith versus individual faith. But I'm waiting to hear your further thoughts on uh, the issue of the next few episodes. Seems like it's not either or, but both and. And I agree that evangelicals have sown too far on the side of individual faith to the neglect of its communal side. And uh, I, I appreciate that, Paul. And I had said in just a brief response um, that that is exactly the sort of thing that I hear um, quite a bit whenever I talk about this, um, because it just feels so unnatural to hear that this whole reality that we're talking about is fundamentally communal. And the way that I would say it is that it's only communal. And um, to talk about the contours of that and the challenge to kind of get into a different ideological frame or to get into a different mental frame to try to picture that, that is such a massive challenge. It's, it, it's not like some new information enters the thought system and you just kind of, you know, 
make a small shift and it changes one or two things. The reality is that the Christian faith, as it's been talked about in the West for at least 500 years, like way more than that, going all the way back to Augustine, um, uh, fifth century. But the way that Christianity has been thought about in the West is only individualistic and the communal aspect of it, just like, like I said, um, because the Jewish aspect has been lost, the concrete aspect has been lost. Like Christianity is always tied to dirt and the ground and practices and money and uh, poverty and filth and, you know, what we regard as, as gross and hideous. It's, it's very concrete. It's a way of life. It's not a thought system and it's not um, private practice. But because it's been so thoroughly individualized, it's not merely that our thoughts are individual. It's like our mental framework, the mental structure is individualistic. Um, like the patterns on the walls of our mind are individualistic. Uh, the foundation is individualistic. The sound of the doorbell is individualistic. And it's like, if you just try to fit in a new thought there, immediately the way that our minds behave, it's like, oh yeah, I see that. But because that means I have to throw out um, all of the thoughts and the frameworks that hold the thoughts and the communal patterns that I practice this all in and the whole way that I conceive of my prayer life and Bible reading and everything, because everything has to go, it feels like. Um, what I would rather say is one of those other kind of evangelical um, responses that are sort of knee-jerk responses. Well, surely there's a balance Surely there's a balance between what you're saying and sort of what I inherited. So we've, you know, we've got to keep the two together. Maybe it's a both and. Um, the, the problem with that is that if you look across the reality of the New Testament, um, there's almost nothing you can do as an individual isolated Christian. The whole thing is communal. Everything has to do with one another's. Everything has to do with social practice, like like behaviors and practices that you do with other people. That's fundamental. It's like, um, I was trying to think of analogies to this this last week. It's almost like if you were to watch a crowd um, react at a football game, or if you were to watch a, a crowd at a football game and try to discuss the behavior of individuals in the crowd, like the crowd rises as one, it makes no sense to say that guy in row 35, you know, seat G rose and also all the other people did too. Um, or if you try to imagine a crowd at a football game doing the wave or if cheerleaders exhorted the audience, you know, let's do the wave. And um, a crowd does the wave. It would make no sense for a single observer. You know, if I said to you, I'm standing here in my study, I'm going to do the wave. That's not the kind of thing that you do by yourself. That's, that's not even a ripple. It's not anything. And in the same way, Christian practice on the individual, if, if we just sort of conceive of it as an individual pursuit or having individual components, um, that, it, it, well, I, I guess I could pick up one of the Bible's metaphors, one of the New Testament's metaphors. That's like talking about um, watching a person behave throughout the day and then isolating all of the conduct um, using referring only to that person's shoulder. Like you would not say that about, say, an individual person uh, teaching in class. You would not talk about, you know, uh, the mouth of Dr. Greer 
taught class this week. You know, obviously the rest of his body didn't. It was he was just speaking or something like that. You talk about a person and a person is a, a collection of body parts. Well, in the same way, the fundamental reality of the New Testament is a social body. It's the church. And no one person can do any of the commands that are, or any of the sort of social practices and exhortations. Nobody, no one person could do those on their own. And I do realize that we have a, we have a whole tradition over the last 500, you know, 1500 actually years of individualized Christianity. And we call it, um, you know, spirituality or private prayer time or whatever. Um, but so many of those things are not things that are envisioned um, as part of how things work to exist among the people of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So there may indeed be individual practices, but those are all things that are preparation for the reality. Like I might have a private prayer time, but what I'm doing is preparing myself to actually be Christian. And the Christian conduct is is done in community, which is why... Um, Luke makes the comment in the book of Acts that the church, you know, all these Christians were hanging out in the temple every day. They just hung out together all the time because the, the essential reality that can't be reduced beyond its, its essence, which is community, was the gathering. And they realized that, which is why they were just together all day, all week. Um, so I guess I would say go through, and it's hard. It took me a long time to do the mental transformation because your mind wants to keep snapping back. If you've heard these things your whole life, um, to sort of get into a different frame, you're going to always want to negotiate with that and say, well, that, that's, that's one extreme, but it's, there's also this thing over here. I get what you're saying, but there's, if it's fundamentally communal, and that's the only thing that's talked about in the New Testament, um, I don't know what other side there is to sort of balance that off of. It's, that's just the thing that it is. That's the essence of it. That's the, the sine qua non. So that if you take that away and add another element, you don't have the thing anymore. So anyway, I got a couple of other questions about you know, how would you integrate with that text, this text and that text. And um, I'll perhaps respond to those individually because I'm already talking way too much. Um, but anyway, I got a lot of great responses to these last two episodes and I'm very grateful. And I also want to say that um, every once in a while, um, one of the really gratifying things about doing this podcast is when people share with me their stories of, um, you know, being in the church or maybe being hurt by the church or their, their, their journey as a Christian person, their intellectual journey or whatever. And, um, when, whenever I, uh, receive that, there's something beautiful and sacred about that. And I, I'm, I'm profoundly grateful. And, um, there've been a few people that, um, had, some good correspondence with through this podcast. And I just feel like that is one of the most wonderful gifts that I could possibly receive. And so I just want to say thank you. I want to tell you about a book. It's called The Personality Brokers, The Strange History of Myers-Briggs and the Birth of Personality Testing. It's written by Merv Emery and it's published by Anchor Books. I'm really interested in personality tests because I'm very interested in self-knowledge. I'm always wanting to know how I operate in relationships, why I react to situations the way that I do, 
why I care deeply about things no one else seems interested in, and why the things that absorb others' attention just don't grab me. Plus, I kind of think it makes me a better person. And there are some personality tests that I have found more helpful than others. For me, the Enneagram has been immensely helpful because it doesn't analyze surface behaviors, but exposes deep motivations. It envisions personality as the collection of survival strategies that have brought people to the present. And that's the starting point for growth and self-compassion and compassion toward others. It maps a program for growth and self-knowledge and for growth in relationships. And it's self-consciously a wisdom tradition rather than a scientific method. What I love about the Enneagram is that it doesn't merely assign a label to a person and predict how they'll behave or fit into a larger system. Rather, it names starting points from which people can open themselves up and grow into fuller expressions of who they genuinely are. It's hopeful and open-ended rather than descriptive and final. I found exactly the opposite with the Myers-Briggs personality type indicator. It's just been completely unhelpful to me, and I've often wondered why others find it so interesting and helpful. When I run into a situation like that, I typically imagine that something's wrong with me. With all that in mind, I came across this fascinating volume in a, re in a review of books recently, and the description of it as a sort of gripping mystery tale got my attention. The author, Merv Emery, teaches English at the University of Oxford, and she does indeed have a fascinating story to tell about the origins of what has become the most well-known and most widely used personality test. It begins with Catherine Briggs, who was a housewife and amateur psychoanalyst in the early 20th century. She had a lively mind and made observations about the interactions of children who had gathered to play with her daughter in their home. She began instructing mothers in the care and nurture of their children according to her observations of different temperaments and patterns of play that she had observed. She read Carl Jung's works of psychoanalysis, and her world was transformed. She wrote countless letters to Jung about what he had written and sought to boil down his analysis of human personality into four temperaments using her own descriptive code. She was tireless in her efforts to get her work evaluated and approved by psychology and psychiatry departments and universities that were growing in the first half of the 20th century. A major problem she ran into, however, is that the results of her tests were not repeatable by experts in the field. And it wasn't entirely clear that the various versions of her tests had any real use, except to predict where, pe where certain people with different personalities would fit into an organization. Still, because of her persistence, she was able to convince publishers of magazines in the booming self-help industry to distribute the tests that she modified with the help of her daughter, Isabel Briggs Myers. The machinations and manipulations, the twists and the turns in this story are almost too crazy to believe. In a sense, the story is a tribute to the self-made individual who is absolutely convinced that she has some new self-help gospel to which the world must have access. This book was really fun to read, illuminating not only the backstory of the Myers-Briggs personality type indicator, but of the self-help industry that boomed in the early to mid-20th century. It was mostly aimed at describing the typical lives of the white middle class as it developed around that time. And it didn't have much use beyond slotting people into various roles in white collar office environments, the military and government bureaucracies. It certainly helped me to see why I found the Myers-Briggs descriptive framework to be almost entirely unhelpful as a tool for self-understanding and growth and compassion for myself and for others. If you're looking for a history that is enthralling and reads like a mystery novel, and if you're interested in personality tests, 
this is the book for you. It's by Merv Emery, and it's called The Personality Brokers, The Strange History of Myers-Briggs and the Birth of Personality Testing. It's published by Anchor Books. Get it, as ever, from an independent bookstore. So I'm kind of starting out this whole season four, as I've said before, talking about um, engaging with scripture or encountering scripture or whatever, how to, not really how to study the Bible, um, but sort of something like that. I don't know. I don't have a really a, a title for all this except season four. And um, I thought I would start by talking about what this whole thing is about, because I, as I said in the last episode, it's really critical to just have a good answer to that question. What is this whole thing about when you encounter um, a 10 minute episode or 10 minute you know clip of something you know in the Lord of the Rings trilogy? You you want to be able to put that into a larger narrative plot line. Like, what's this whole thing about? And so if somebody can sort of tell you, give you a summary of the whole thing, you can understand what's happening in that 10 minute clip. And in the same way, uh, whenever we're discussing uh, or studying or encountering a, you know, a distinct um, passage of scripture or a chapter of the Gospels or a psalm or whatever, uh, we want to be asking the question, what is this whole thing about? And um, the answer I find that for many Christian people in contexts that I've been in is that you know the larger story of what this whole thing about is my relationship with God and all the texts that I study have to do with fostering my love for God, or, you know, this is telling me I should be kind to my neighbor or something like that. That, you know, the whole, the big story is about me and about God in my life or something like that. Um, and that's a real unhelpful way of seeing things. That's, that's completely not at all. That's just, that's not what this whole thing is about. Um, it's a story about uh, God and his relationship with the world. And it's a story of God establishing his rule over creation through humanity for his glory. That's what the big story is about. It's not, um, it's not a story that excludes humanity. It's not a story that excludes God. It's, it integrates the two. I find that Christian people very often talk like that. It's not about us. It's about God. Well, that's a misreading of the Bible. There's just, it's, God is for humanity and wants to not only relate with humanity, but wants to reign over creation through humanity. He wants to bless creation through humanity. He wants to bless humanity through humanity. So it's a, it's a, you know, it's a holistic scene and to bracket out one aspect of it does not do any justice to any of it. In fact, um, to bracket out humanity out of some kind of felt um, need to exalt God, you know, if we sort of diminish ourselves, we'll exalt God. If we feel that way, we don't understand the role that humanity plays in the whole scenario, which is the glory of God. So if we want to highlight the glory of God, we will be good, thoroughgoing humanists. Um, to highlight the human and to sort of um, honor and dignify the human is to glorify God and to see the human entering the fullness of their wonder is itself God's glory. But I'm just getting fantastically ahead of myself. Um, I'd said that if you want to follow along with, with what I'm talking about, you're welcome to 
uh, email me at the email address I've given twice in this episode already. And uh, I'll send you this handout that I've put together that I'm now seeing is somewhat inadequate and I'd want to change it up, but whatever. I'm not going to do that um, because there's baseball to watch tonight. And um, you'll be able to follow along with what I'm talking about here. And as I said, um, I, I sort of portrayed this visually as far as how I see the big scriptural story working out and of Jesus's role sort of at the center of it. Um, it seems to me that we get this, the big story wrong when we make it a story about Jesus, because it's it's really not. It's about, um, and so, so, so much of it is a story about Abraham and a story of God reaching out to all humanity through Abraham. And um, it's sort of a sequence of failed narratives that Jesus kind of brings together and picks up and redeems and um, gets the whole story back on track. And so um, if you have the handout, you see how that, I sort of portray that. And in this episode, and it may take some others, um, because I do realize I'm long-winded, and I've already said a whole lot about a whole lot of things. Um, in this episode, I want to talk about that first narrative moment and um, sort of how this whole thing begins. And so I want to talk about the story of God establishing his rule over creation through humanity for his glory, because that's the first, that's what the whole story is about. And that's especially highlighted by the very first narrative moment. And I do think it's helpful in some senses to talk about creation, fall, and redemption in mapping the big storyline. I think that that's, that that provide that's a common way of talking, and I do think that that's helpful in many ways. Um, what I find interesting about that, however, is that very few, uh, or I should say, very little time when when I've heard things presented in that way, very little time is spent talking about that first moment. You know, we were created for a relationship with God and meant to be rulers over the earth, but human sin entered the picture. And then, because uh, in, at least in the tradition, uh, the Christian tradition with which I'm familiar, uh, because we're so familiar with sort of salvation moments, we want to just rush on to that. And what I have found in uh, my understanding of how the Bible fits together is that we have spent far too little thinking about and talking about what's actually happening in the first two chapters of Genesis. There is just so much there. Those chapters are... In the, in the ways that so many of us understand the Bible, those chapters are so insignificant, and that's a tragedy. And insofar as people have spent time thinking about the first two chapters of the Bible, um, we've gotten into fights about whether they refer to sort of literal history or not, which I think is is a... Um, it, it would be, it'd be difficult to think of a more exact job of missing the point to engage them in that way. So, um, creation, fall, and redemption. And I was going to say, what I found really helpful is um, how my friend David Vinson has kind of remapped that. And he talks, instead of creation, fall, and redemption, he talks about goal, mess, plan, which I think is so fantastic. He's a genius. But the movements are not creation, fall, and redemption. Um, but rather goal, mess, 
and plan, which I think is fantastic because that highlights how it is that in Genesis 1 and 2, there is already a plan in place. It's not like it's not like things were static and should have stayed that way. And then humanity uh, fell from that. It's that at the beginning, there was this whole plan in place. And there was this whole dynamic and God had um, dreams and, and visions of what this was supposed to be like. And the commission of humanity was to see that lived out. There was a job to do from the beginning. And God had aims and intentions, and it was supposed to develop, and he invites humanity into a partnership to see that it all happens. And instead of humanity doing that, they make a mess of things. But if we don't think through what was the goal of this whole thing anyway, we just miss so much else. We, we, we miss out on what the recovery of all that is. And of course, um, in response to the mess, God has a plan uh, to get things back on track. And that plan has everything to do with Abraham in Genesis 12, which is sort of the start of how things kind of start coming together in God's big story. Um, but the whole intention of the plan is to recover something so that humanity can get back to sort of realizing the goal that God had from the beginning. And that goal was... Uh, for God to establish his rule over creation through humanity for his glory. So there's a lot more um, dynamism at work. There's a lot more movement. And the first two chapters of Genesis um, become just massively, massively important for us to understand. And the first two chapters of Genesis are not meant um, to sort of have data in our minds for us to sort of know. They are... Um, Oh, there's there's sort of like epic poetry. I mean, just if you've been shaped by any kind of like a creationist or like a six day creationist reading of Genesis, um, just be kind to yourself and um, kind of come to grips with the reality that you were you were given a piece of paper with a pinhole in it to look at um, Yellowstone. Okay, and it wasn't your fault, but someone hyper-focused your attention on a couple of details in Genesis and got them wrong and made you see that there was not all of this other wonder there. So without overturning that or saying without, we don't have to get into critiquing that, just just pick that up in your mental you know, furniture room and just set it outside for now. You can return to that area down the road and set it ablaze, but that's not important for now. What's important for now is to actually look at Genesis 1 and 2 and see what's there and to um, to respect what Genesis 1 and 2 as epic uh, poetry are doing. They're not giving data points necessarily. They're wanting to sort of um, explode your imagination so that you see larger vistas of what this whole thing was all supposed to be about. Um, there are provocative details that make you sort of wonder um, and, and sort of send your mind down into the rest of Scripture to kind of fill in some details and imagine with Genesis 1 and 2 what's happening. And um, hopefully I'll be able to capture some of that. I'll give it a first shot here today. I'm sure we'll return to some more of that down the road. And 
I'm happy to have a conversation about this uh, with anybody because it's kind of fun to talk about. So I want to talk about uh, God's aims in creation and focus for a while on Genesis 1 and 2 and really just start with talking about the characters as they are introduced uh, in the narrative. And, um, and in doing so, I want to sort of um, be governed completely by the details in the text. And when, when I fill in um, dynamics that are happening um, in the text, I want to be referring to other parts of Scripture and not necessarily referring to um, some kind of theology that I inherited. That's the aim of uh, biblical studies and biblical scholars try to do this to always be returning in our minds and imaginations to details of biblical texts and passing judgment on our inherited notions to see if they match or if they need to be dispensed with. So I'm going to be thinking about the characters that are introduced. And the first character, of course, is God. Um, there's a, <clears throat> excuse me. There's also the setting that we encounter and that is um, creation itself. And, um, and how God sort of develops that and how it is itself developing. And then uh, the humans that are there and thinking about what the text says about the humans and what they're supposed to be doing. Um, but thinking first about this character that is introduced in the narrative, and that is God. And uh, beginning with Genesis 1 verse 2, it says that the earth was formless and void, Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And it seems to me that right away there, we get some sort of glimpses of what is, uh, what's happening with the scene, and then also what's happening with um, uh, sort of the character of God. And God is introduced right from the beginning as creator, like he's the one who uh, shaped this thing. And what's really interesting is that uh, the narrative says that the earth was formless and it was void, like it had no shape to it and it was empty. And um, that kind of should make you feel uncomfortable as a human being because every all the spaces that you ever imagine have some kind of form to them and there's stuff in them, like my amazing study. It's got four walls, doorway. Um, Got these beautiful bookshelves in here now. My desk, my desk chair, printer. It has a logic to it, and I get it. It's mine. Um, but if I, if I was just in in no space with nothing, that is not at all something that is uh, comfortable. It's not. It's not. Um, non space is not where you want to be. It doesn't make any kind of sense at all. So what you have there is an indication that. There was a situation that was inhospitable for human flourishing, and God is going to sort of um, act upon it and do something with it. And there's a load of, there's a big tradition of um, interpretation that sees these two terms, the Hebrew terms behind formless and empty, as almost like um, actors that represent chaos. And chaos is a big force in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament, represented typically by the sea or rivers uh, or kind of any body of water. Um, but there's the sense as the biblical narrative goes along, that, and, and 
I mean, ancient peoples across cultures all had this kind of up and running in their in their um, ideological structure. Um, that creation was always in danger of kind of coming apart, of of returning to its form, of formlessness and emptiness. And um, in fact, in uh, Lamentations and in Jeremiah and in the prophets who weep over the destruction of Jerusalem, they speak in terms of coming apart. Um, like everything's returning to chaos where there's, there's God's order of flourishing is being violated and disrupted. Well, that's, that's the condition in which God enters powerfully to act and to sort of harness these forces, um, and to bring about and to begin to bring about, um, a space and a place that is wonderfully hospitable for human flourishing. That's sort of what's happening here. Um, and what God begins to do when he begins the act of creation is he's beginning to form and to fill. He's giving shape, um, structure and order to this place so that it makes sense, so that, so that human, um, joy can take place, so that humans can find, uh, welcome and hospitality and be at rest and, um, sort of have satisfaction and he begins to fill it with all kinds of amazing things, things that um, that sort of overwhelm the imagination as far as how abundant this creation is meant to be. And if you notice, if you kind of range throughout Genesis 1, there are loads of forms that um, that God brings about. He uh, there's, a, there's a number of rhythms that he brings into being. There's night and there's day. There's a variety of seasons. There are seven days. You have six days of, of God working and one day of not working. Um, there, there's a place where there's a limit to the sea. There's dry land. Um, there's sort of all these rhythms and orders that give shape to this thing that, like I said, are making it a place that is fit for human flourishing. It's God constructing this place where he wants humanity to just love being. That's what God is up to. And of course, he's filling it with all kinds of things. And the filling, if you just sort of pay close attention, and here again, I would recommend reading this in the NASB and read it, read it in the, the NIV and see the, some of the differences and some of the details that are brought out. Um, but notice the verbs um, that are used to describe like what is in the waters and what's in the skies, and what's on the ground. They're, they're obnoxious terms. It's not that there are fish in the sea and birds in the sky, and on the ground there are animals. It's like the ground is swarming with animals, and the, the seas are teeming with fish, and the skies are filled with birds. It's like there's just so much life here. And there's, it's, it's a place of super abundant mega plenty. There's just way more here than anybody needs. Like it's over, you're overwhelmed with resources. Uh, it's, it's a place of richness so that human life is just going to be well supplied for it. It's, it's like a joke how this, this kind of works on our imaginations. Like it's the place you want to be. It's a place teeming with life. And, um, you know, all the plant life is, you know, the ground is bursting forth with animals. And by the way, if you want to get caught up in scientific um, reading, 
of um, the Genesis narrative and ask, where do animals come from? Um, according to Genesis, they don't come from animals. They come from the ground. The ground sort of just belches forth these animals. Anyway, just whatever. Let's have science take a back seat. Um, but all this plant life um, is, is sort of in development. Things are sort of producing the same things after their kind. And everything is growing and teeming with life. You have this vibrancy to it. This is not, it is absolutely not a static condition. It's not that creation is there. Humans have relationship with God. They're sort of standing there relating to God. All right, don't sin. They sinned. Okay, now God has to make a plan. The setting is dynamic. In fact, um, it's really, really important that we get the terminology, right? That we, well, I'll, I'll just say it this way. It's really, really important that you pay attention to what the Bible says. So what, what Genesis 1 and 2 have to say about the narrative, um, what, what, when God begins his work of creation, and then he just looks at it, he, he loves it. He loves it. And he keeps saying, it's good. It's good. And then the final judgment, it's very good. Um, this, is, this is just how God wants it. This is how God wants it. Not in the sense that this is how God wants it and he, he wants it to stay that way. There's development and change and production. And um, everything is sort of reproducing and growing and developing. It's, it's a creation that is active in itself. Um, so God sort of starts this process and it's, it's, it's very dynamic. Okay. And I was going to say, it's really important that we get the wording right and not say that creation was a state of perfection. Partly because that's not what the text says. And we should, we should try to match our language as much as possible to what the text says and not bring in terms that, that the text doesn't use. And one critical one that leads to just so much misunderstanding is to talk about Genesis 1 and 2 as a condition of perfection rather than a, a condition of goodness. And I, it's not that I'm wanting to, to argue for imperfection. It's just that perfection, imperfection, um, brings in ideological notions that simply do not belong in Genesis 1 and 2. And for the most part, perfection, imperfection, at least the way that we understand these terms, we, we get them from a much later Greek world where um, that describes something that is pristine and, you know, has no faults in it uh, in contrast to something that is not pristine or has faults in it. And that, to use the language of perfection, it just gets us off track in so many ways. And in, in one of those ways, is that it makes us imagine that the, uh, the condition of things in Genesis 1 and 2 is a state, because perfection is a state in the, in the Greek worldview. And, and the way that we imagine perfection, uh, our imagination is affected by a Greek worldview, which is alien to the Hebrew Bible, okay? Um, but perfection is static, like there's nothing happening. Um, it, it, it makes us think of Genesis 1 and 2 as a surgical theater. What was happening in Genesis 1 and 2? Well, it was all white and there were no germs in it. That is not what's happening 
in Genesis one and two. Um, that just it just perverts our imaginations in, in just enough so that we just miss what's happening. I mean, there's reproduction, there's dirt, there's mess, there's you know all kinds of animals everywhere. Um, imperfection, in this sense, um, makes us think. I mean, here's how my mind works. It makes me think of going to visit my great aunt's house, my great aunt um, who just passed away last February. She was a week shy of being 104. Um, she was a hobbled, uh, bent over, crooked, very tiny Mediterranean person. Greeks shrink when they get old, uh, which does not bode well for me, but whatever. Um, when we went to her, she, she never had children. And, um, you know, going to her house, it was like you, you couldn't touch anything. Um, you had to sit still because everything was so beautiful and beautifully arranged in her house. And it's like we all just wanted to run around and play tag. And, you know, we used to play this game called Over the Top on couches and just you'd fly over the back of the couch like Walter Payton um, or Earl Campbell. We didn't do that at my great aunt's house. You didn't do anything at my great aunt's house. If you want to do any of that, you go outside. But, um, you know, so the way we typically imagine things is like in Genesis one and two, it was like that. Um, that's very different from the, the house I grew up in where, uh, there were six of us children. And it's like, when you have a lot of kids, you just don't have a lot of delicate things around the house. You know, there's a lot of running around and fighting and chasing and yelling and wild play and all that kind of stuff, because that's an environment of flourishing and joy and fun and life. So just to say, um, it, and perfection implies no change, no development. Like it just has to stay that way. And what you have to do is not ruin it. But that misunderstands not only the details that I've just sort of highlighted to this point, but it misunderstands the character of humans as God commissions them to actually change it, develop it, expand it, grow it, do stuff with it. I'm, so anyway, just to say, get perfection language out of your mind and even get out of your mind in thinking about Genesis 1 and 2, uh, the binary of perfection and imperfection, because it just doesn't fit. It's not in view. So just get rid of it. Um, and I'm not trying to like smuggle in some kind of evil or sin or anything like that at all. Um, just that these are words that come in and do a lot of, of like, you know, running around and breaking things and obfuscating what the text is actually all about. Keep in mind that the text says that it's good and be, be satisfied with that. By the way, just a little footnote, um, language of perfection and imperfection is used in the Hebrew um, Bible and in Jewish literature that postdates the Hebrew Bible. Um, it's actually a pretty important category, but it doesn't have to do with imperfection in a Greek sense. Uh, sorry, it doesn't have to do with perfection and imperfection in a Greek sense. In fact, it doesn't. It doesn't imply that there are no faults. Um, in passages where. Um, I'm trying to think, I know Abraham, and Jewish, certain Jewish texts talk about Abraham as being, you know, um, being characterized by perfection of way, um, or David, perfection of way. 
um, what those Jewish texts are trying to highlight is not that Abraham never did anything wrong or made mistakes or David never did anything wrong, never made mistakes. They're trying to talk about how the way that they're presented in texts is that they had a, a wholehearted orientation toward God. And even when they made mistakes and all that, they responded to those well when confronted by God. So when in the Hebrew world, which is a load murkier and just has a lot more complexity in certain directions, then a Greek mode of thought, perfection and imperfection are up and running, but they just mean something different. Anyway, so that's a, a long way of saying, don't talk about the original condition of humanity with, with terms like perfect, like everything was perfect and humans brought sin into the world. That is an exercise in failing to see what's in the text of Genesis 1 and 2. It's all good. And um, like I said, God is bringing order to where there is non-order, and he's bringing order to what is not yet ordered. Um, and he's bringing order to what's disordered. Like there's this kind of chaos and a, a not yet harnessed creation, and God is bringing order and structure to it through seasons, through the, the rhythm of day and night, the distinction and the boundary between sea and land. In fact, in Job, in Pondering Creation, Job talks about God actually saying to the sea, because the sea in the ancient world is a character. The sea is an actor that is sinister, that represents the forces of chaos. God says to the sea in a commanding way, this far and no farther. Here are your limits. And those limits and those patterns and those rhythms are all being put into creation from the beginning. So there are a few other things I want to say about the character God. That is to say, reading the narrative and um, sort of rightly reckoning with the character God as that character is represented in the narrative. Um, there are a number of really important things to say you know, that are kind of going on here. But I just want to kind of get at one of those now and um, probably have to draw this out and expand upon it down the road. But just to say for now that across Genesis 1 and 2, the character God, I'm not talking about the character of God, but God as a character is portrayed as, as having a complex relationship to the world and a complex relationship to humanity. And by complex, I just mean it's not simple. He's not a simple character. And the, and the reason I'm saying that is because there are two creation accounts in Genesis 1 and 2. Um, and there, there are many, many ways of talking about this. And I'll try to talk about it from one perspective and not from a perspective um, of saying that they are troublingly contradictory. I think that these are meant to be complementary. And they're meant to depict how it is that God's relationship to humanity and God's relationship to his creation is complex. It's not simple and straightforward. And this requires massive elasticity of brain to, because it's just, it's, it's hard to get your head around. And when you sort of quickly run into the realm of um, holding together two things that you simply cannot reconcile. And I think you just have to come to grips with that, but also come to see that it's very promising. There's so much promise and hope in, in coming to grips with God in his complex relationship to the creation. 
Here's what I mean. The first creation account is in Genesis 1-1 to 2-3. And then there is an introductory formula in 2-4 that um, begins the second creation account, which runs to the end of chapter 2. And these are not uh, two sort of divergent. If you read these theologically, what you can see is that these are these are two looks at God's relationship to the creation. Because really, Genesis 1 and 2, as um, theological poetry or poetic theology or whatever, these are not meant to answer the question, what happened? What happened in the beginning? That's where some sort of, you know, some folks get off, get off the trail right there and go in a wrong direction. John Walton's uh, books have been just so extremely helpful along these lines. Um, Genesis 1 and 2 are meant to talk about and to give sense to what this place is. That's the question it answers. What is this place? What's going on here? What is all this? And how do we think about it? How do we give meaning and shape uh, to what this whole thing is all about so that we can understand ourselves in the current moment? It's not an account of what happened way back when. And so um, in Genesis 1-1 up to 2-3, that is sort of a pondering of creation, a meditation on what this whole thing is from the perspective of God as king over creation. God is portrayed as separate from his creation, transcendent over it, exalted high above it, you know, not bound to it or by it. I mean, he's sort of king over it. And the way that he creates is completely by his kind of like divine declaration. It's all done by speaking. He speaks everything into existence. He commands and creation responds. Like things just happen. He says it, it happens. Says it, it happens. He does all of this ordering and um, creating of this wonderfully, ridiculously flourishing place by divine decree. And what Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3 is meant to portray is that God's relationship to the world is um, a relationship where God is exalted above it and he has command over it. He's king over it. He is the, the exalted king. Genesis 2, 4 to the end of chapter 2 is a, um, a complementary pondering of the creation from a different perspective. In this portrayal, God is not portrayed as transcending king. He is portrayed as an actor within the drama. He's portrayed as genuinely interacting with the drama, with other characters in the drama, with the stuff of the setting itself. And in Genesis 2, 4, God himself is in the midst of the creation, and he creates the man from the dust of the ground, like he scoops down and fashions, he, he makes this, he molds the man. And then he takes the man and he puts him to sleep and he opens the man up with his hands, sort of like a surgeon. And he takes a rib and he fashions the woman and brings the two of them together. And um, he, he sort of breathes into their nostrils, the breath of life, so that, I mean, this is very tactile. He's touching. He's doing things with hands. He's putting his mouth on the, the man's nose. It's like this is all very touch 
oriented, tactile. God is there as a character doing things with his hands. Um, he, and he's fully involved in the drama as it unfolds. He's not separate from it. He's a character in it. Um, and then what's really interesting is, uh, or I, I should say it this way. Um, and so we are meant to understand that God's relationship is not either or. It's not that God is transcendent king and sometimes he comes down and enters the drama. It's that God is transcendent king, distinct from the creation, um, sort of ruling over it, and he's an actor within it. He's involved within the drama as it unfolds. He, um, he engages genuinely as an actor with other actors in the drama. And it's a genuine engagement. And the reason I, I use that language, I don't like the, the theological language so much of like transcendence and immanence. That, that's what theologians talk about. Cool. Um, I try to be as sort of organic to the biblical text as possible. He's transcendent king who speaks commanding word and creation responds. But he's also an authentic actor in the drama or he's a genuinely He's a, he's a genuine participant in the drama as it unfolds. And by genuine participant, what I mean to communicate is that when God is acting um, or when he's portrayed as doing something, that's really how he is. And thinking about how the two relate to one another, uh, to my mind, these are not, the way that these are ultimately compatible is not sort of available, if we think in theological terms, the way that these realities are ultimately compatible is not available to human minds, if you want to think in theological terms. I just prefer to think of it this way. This is how God is portrayed. Um, I want to say a whole lot more about that um, as episodes unfold, um, but this is just how the, the theological narrative in Genesis begins telling the story. God is transcending King, and he's genuinely participating in things as they unfold. And one of the reasons I like to say that is um, there's a statement here in Genesis 2.19 where you get this sort of close to creation account. Um, in fact, that's maybe another way of saying it. God is both transcending King over creation, and he's very near to creation. I think that's also portrayed, by the way, um, in this statement that the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters that in some way, and I'm, I'm going reading later biblical passages into Genesis one, two, especially Romans eight, where Paul portrays the spirit as groaning um, with the groaning of creation, because the spirit of God is God who is close to creation Um sort of sensing all that's happening while God is also transcending King over it. But what's really interesting is what happens in chapter two, verse 19, where uh, God takes the man again, very tactile. He takes the man and puts him into the garden and he brings all of the, um, he brings all the animals like paraded before the human to see what he will name them. Really interesting detail. God brings the animals before the human 
to see what he will name them. So it's a very interesting sort of little window into how it is that God is a genuine participant in the drama as it unfolds. We'll see that a lot in Genesis 3. But uh, what I've noticed is that many Christians will read the descriptions of God being genuinely interactive um, with creation as it unfolds and with creatures as they develop, but they will not want to view God as developing. They will not want to view God as in genuine interaction. It's like, we just can't have that. God is, again, here we go. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows what the man will name them. And all I want to say in response is this is another perfect example of us refusing to let the details of the text unsettle our theological assumptions. This is how the text portrays God. And if you really have um, this commitment to let the text shape your thinking about God, then you'll let yourself be challenged and put into that very uncomfortable position of how is it that God is portrayed in Genesis 2.19 as observer and audience and learner about what the human is going to call the animals. He names them and God finds out what the human wants to call them when the human does that. Very interesting. So this is why I say that this is a very complex portrait a complex depiction of God's relationship to the world. He's both transcendent king and he is a genuine participant as the drama unfolds. And just to draw that out a bit more, we could pop into Genesis 3 and talk about um, God's relationship with, um, with the two humans as he learns what happens, as he's horrified at what has, has developed. Um God's genuine interactions with Abraham as things go on, and he learns about Abraham. Uh, God's wrestling and being confounded by the choices that Israel makes and says things like, I thought that you would have done this, but you you didn't. Um, and then, of course, thinking about Jesus's interactions in the Gospels and how he is a genuine participant in things as they unfold. So um, that leaves us like I said, with a complex understanding of God. He's both transcending king in the biblical story as it unfolds, and he is a genuine participant in the drama as it develops. Um, and by the way, that is that is something um, that's something good and uh, wonderful if you are a Christian being alive in this world. And I think it's, at least in the Christian communities that I have, um, inhabited over the course of my life, it's very easy for for Christians to relate to God as transcendent king and assume a lot about all of that. Um, assume the omnis that are not mentioned in scripture, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, and assume that God functions basically like a Greek deity, Greek pagan deity, that he's all powerful, he's everywhere, and he knows everything, um, which is simply not how things are portrayed. It's, it's not how God is portrayed as trans, transcending king actually at all. Um, but when when trouble happens in our lives or when uh, we come to sort of a crossroads in our lives, um, we typically check out into that vision of God as sort of orchestrating everything. Like he's the one moving all the chess pieces on the board. Um, whereas as scripture develops, we're given a model 
in um, in so many biblical actors who relate to God as if he's genuinely interacting with them. And they complain to God. Um, they sort of rage against God. They want to, they demand an encounter with God. They ask God, do you know what you're doing? Um, and then very often in response to how people speak to God, God will change or God will, you know, change course or uh, orient things differently or change his mind because he's really interacting with humans as the story goes. But that vision of things, I think, has been so lost to so many of us who have Greek um, mindsets, Greek ideological structures in our mind, where we think in terms of um, static scenarios. God is static. He's never changing. Um, he knows everything. He's the biggest brain around, and he's all-powerful, and things are just the way they are. They've been decreed from the beginning. That's just how it goes. And um, this, the alternative... Uh, present, sorry, the corresponding presentation of God as being a genuine relator with creation as it unfolds is completely lost from view. And I would want to argue also that God as a character who is transcending king is also actually perverted and corrupted by that kind of talk, um, because that's not how God is portrayed as transcending king in scripture as it unfolds. Um. There are some other things I want to say about God as a character in the drama as it unfolds, but just to say for now, uh, that's the beginning of talk about one of the characters in the drama, and I'm going to have a whole lot to say about a lot more as time goes on. Genesis 1 and 2 is jam-packed with loads of stuff, and if you want some good preparation for future discussions... Just pull out an NASB or an NIV, pull out preferably both, and just read them for the details that are there and notice some of the surprising details that pop out and notice what you think you were going to see there when you read those chapters and um, make just a bunch, make a list of questions and observations of what, you're, what you find you're surprised by and even sort of what questions you have as you read. That's a great way uh, to just engage with scripture. All right, it's late in the afternoon for me, and um, there are some street tacos awaiting me, which makes it a beautiful day. Don't let this one get away. Mm -hmm.